Hello, everybody, and welcome to Indie Cult, the podcast where we discuss the struggles and learning experiences of independent artists and creative minds. I'm George, and with me today is Raul Contreras. You know, speaking of earlier, Michael Mann, um, I watched Heat for the first time mm-hmm. uh, like two days ago, mm-hmm. and it's a great movie. But just like he also directed Manhunter, which I didn't know until after I watched it yesterday. Um, the the music that he decides to use because it was made like when was Heat made? Late eighties, or was, was it made it early nineties? I think early nineties. I could look the, that up real quick. There are still there are still some traces of like that the, the that eighties music that he puts in his movies that just take me the hell out of his movies, and I'm just like I can't I can't with this I. I hate music from like the 16 candles types 80 right. music. I just I can't stand it in movies and I it takes me the hell out of it and yesterday while I was watching Manhunter 95 mid mid 90s actually yeah. There you go. And it like there were when I was watching Manhunter yesterday um I just couldn't concentrate and I kept telling my girlfriend I was like I can't with this music it just doesn't make sense right now. Um <laughs> It was just so, and and you know it's crazy. There's this movie called The Gambler. I don't even know who made it. You, you know, it was the movie with Mark Wahlberg and John uh, John Goodman. You've told me about this movie and Brie Larson, right? Yes. Yeah, you and told me about this movie. I've never seen it. John Goodman has a great like. John Goodman is the only good thing in that movie. So freaking good. Right. But um, the movie sucks. And at the end, <laughs> at the end, he's like whatever issue he had gets resolved and mark Wahlberg is like running to his girlfriend after like these gangsters try to kill him and all these other things and they play like the 80s music that's inspiring that's happy and he's just like running and it's like this teen angst ending to this really kind of messed up movie and you're just like what the hell i just can't do it ever since then i think my mind's been tainted by that scene and i just like i can't watch Michael Mann movies like that. He's a great director. Michael Mann both. didn't make that movie though. That's that's what's <laughs> wait, funny. Who, wait, who it's made like, it? It's like it's like a movie Michael Mann didn't make turned you off to Michael Mann movies. What was it? Oh, you're saying The Gambler wasn't? Yeah, yeah, The Gambler. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh whoever made The Gambler ruined it for me. <laughs> so <laughs> but, I, I, th- that just goes to show you how important music choice is. Yeah. Um whether definitely. it's the, whether it's an original score or a soundtrack, it, music Music is the ultimate emotion, you know? Oh, definitely. One of the best soundtracks in a movie and I think one of the more I think one of the more creative ones probably uh in my opinion, Punch Drunk Love. And it's not only You mean the um, score or the soundtrack? Both. Because okay. the the score is one thing, but the yeah. soundtrack what I loved was he took a piece from uh the movie Popeye. Yeah. Um and Olive Olive's yeah, Olive singing. She he took that and he cre- he he like embedded it into the score. Mm-hmm. And it was it was like the perfect song 
to put in that movie along with everything else too to just create just to just be like to be the cherry on top of this movie that created this really good that whole movie is just an emotion right and and it just helped to sort of solidify that emotion more with that score and the soundtrack and it was just it was just really creative and also john byron Breyer, i think that's his name john byron let me look that up real quick i don't want to mess this up but um his scores tend to be really really good um yeah john byron brian john Bryan. oh my god he did the score for the gambler <laughs> i'm not joking um, yeah so um full yeah. circle man full circle that's messed up um oh wow he did he did the score for ladybird oh i really like that movie oh wow stepbrothers what the hell synecdoche new york anyways he's a great person have you been watching anything under quarantine um movie wise yeah i've seen i've seen a lot of stuff um stuff that i've mentioned on the pod on this podcast previously um movie wise i saw train to busan for the first time i like that a lot that was so awesome (laughs) i watched that that recently too um i saw richard jewell clint eastwood's movie Mm. um i like that a lot as well um the thing is man fucking quarantine's been going on for so long um i saw i saw judy the movie about judy garland i like that a lot um um i saw i saw oh i saw the movie i saw this movie called the hunt um which i actually think you might you might like because it's did you see it i i've heard of it it's on my list but it's it's down there on the list of. i mean it's the movie the movie i like movies that know what they are Mm-hmm. whether they're good or bad i like movies that know what they are and if a movie knows that it's not supposed to be taken seriously no matter what i i can i can enjoy a movie like that you know i'm turned off by movies that think that there's some sort of highbrow movie and they're not you know right. but but movies that that are just like hey this is just a silly fun movie and i know that that's what it is cabin in the woods was like that I yeah think, exactly right? cabin in the yeah. woods knew what it was um so that that's what i felt about the hunt the hunt is like this very um it's like an ultra-violent movie. Um, it's kind of a comedy in that the violence can be comedic. Mm-hmm. And it's very it's very politically anti-political, if that makes sense. Um, I guess I, I guess this isn't really a spoiler. The, the plot is that the, um, the... And the cast is pretty good, too. There's a lot of, like, um, somewhat unknown people in it. Um, the, the plot is that the liberal elite have kidnapped the uh, conservative deplorables and hunt them in like a a, man, a human manhunt. Oh game. wow! Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got to give this a watch. Yeah, and it's 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 fun in that it's it's silly and maybe it's it's also poking fun a little bit at at identity politics. I just think it was it was very it's just fun. It's just like a fun movie, you know? Right. It's like it's like. Um, I guess you can equate it to like a John Wick in that it's, you know, it's just like, fuck it, man. Just watch some people get their heads blown off. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be all that serious or all <laughs> that deep, you know? Um, what else? I saw Bad Education, which you had recommended to me. I like that a lot. Um, I saw Queen and Slim. Can we talk about Bad Education real quick? Yeah. 
I'm from Long Island. I grew up in Glen Cove, which is a neighboring town to Oyster Bay, which people tend to know more. Um, and because of Billy I, Joel, right? And <laughs> I felt I felt like they captured the Long Island attitude pretty damn well in that movie. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. But overall, like the writing was so good too. The dialogue, everything, yeah. like, and even and I the, thought score the performances to that. were the best part of that movie. Right, I really like the performances. Right. Hugh Jackman played that role so subtly, you know, like it yeah. wasn't, it, it was just such a good movie. And, um, and, uh, uh, the score to that movie was also really good. You know, it was very minimalistic. Like it, there wasn't a ton going on. Um, yeah. but the score just added this other sort of like, um, this, it, like you knew that everyone was walking on a tightrope, right? Specifically Hugh Jackman, but, um, yeah. It was just such a good performance, and God, what's the um, the 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 woman's name? His uh, Allison Janney. Yes, she, and it's so funny because I started re- I started watching um, West Wing, mm-hmm. and then I saw her in this movie. And I didn't realize she was in the movie until I started watching it, and I was just like, "Holy shit, she has a great range that she plays!" Right, like from her character from West Wing. I don't know if you've watched it. To her character in uh in bad education she has a good range and um her performance was really good i kind of felt bad for her because she was thrown under the bus so quickly but also yeah i mean not, not, not to spoil not to spoil the movie for people right. who haven't seen it because it's still fairly <laughs> right. new i don't know if there's a, the statute of limitations isn't up on that one <laughs> right um but that like, was if you so want spoil West Wing, but <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the first movie in a while where I was just like, I really need to watch this, and I watched it as soon as HBO put it on. I saw Queen and Slim in that back to back. I was I saw Queen and Slim, and then and then I saw that, and then I I saw that on HBO, Bad Education was starting in like a minute, and I was like, all right, let's do it, <laughs> <laughs> double feature. You know, um. I can't believe it took me this long to watch it, but I watched um, uh, Do the Right Thing for the first time uh, Spike uh, Lee's, this yeah. week. Um, the thing with Spike Lee is uh, the movies that I was exposed to later in his career weren't good, in my opinion. Like what? Um, I'm not talking about Black Klansman, but like The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which was a movie that came out um, in 2014. Yeah, I think there was there was I, a period like after Inside Man, where there was like a stretch of like, not I wouldn't say his best, right? Like after after like Inside Man, and then there was like a, a few that were just kind of like you don't you forgot that he even made them. Right, Red Red Hook Summer wasn't one I was into. Um, I still have to watch Twenty Fifth Hour. Um, I didn't realize he directed that. Yeah, oh that that's a good one with Edward Norton. But I remember just being like, I am not into this. And then I watched Do the Right Thing and I was just like, holy shit. Like, say what you will about his movies. He's still an auteur, right? But like, yeah, Do the Right Thing. The thing that struck out to me most was how he was able to to create these different characters in uh, each one being very unique and doing it quickly, right? Like he only had less than a minute to establish these characters in some instances and he did it effectively and i was just like okay this is amazing work and that's early in his career too right that was like one of his first movies he was 30 at the time i think it was it was after she's gotta have it um Mm. and uh 
it was still it's still amazing uh, and even his acting in that movie is pretty damn good you know uh he becomes a really likable character so fast in that movie and i feel like it's hard to do that early in your career right or early in a movie in general to like a character like almost instantly and i remember being like wow this guy's cool like he i would also everyone. say especially when you're when it's an indie film and you're the director so you're you've got so much other shit to worry about you know what i mean it's right. not like you're if you're if you're if you're a director and the actor on a big budget movie you got a lot of people to kind of shoulder a little bit of that burden when you have to be on camera and direct not not I'm not saying they do your job for you but I'm saying right. like you know you you got you got people around you to help out but I, on small indie productions you don't have that that flexibility so I, it, it is impressive that he was able to kind of jump back and forth um, and he doesn't. And and now I feel like if he wanted to act, he'd probably have a lot a, a, a much easier time considering his movies get a lot of funding uh, nowadays. But he just kind of abandoned it. Right. And he had a ton of amazing actors in that movie, including including Rosie Perez. Right. Like, it, it, like yeah. I, she, you know, um, and then uh, Samuel L. Jackson is in it. Um, yeah. Also, I didn't realize, like, I couldn't even notice, but um, uh, Giancarlo Esposito's in it from uh, from Breaking Bad. He plays. Uh, uh, the I probably owner. didn't know who that was when I saw. Exactly. Yeah. But even while I was watching it, then I was just like, "What? He's in this movie?" Like after the <laughs> credits, because um, he's he, he, like you you can't even recognize him. Um, but it was just such a good movie, character driven, but also good good direction too right like the colors in his movies were amazing um so i'm going down the spike lee rabbit hole soon did you did you see black black clansman no i didn't hmm. it's on my list though you, you should I, I liked it i think it's his best work in a very long time i gotta watch it and um i went through a weird phase like when the quarantine started i think i told you i was just like binge watching horror movies and i started with like three from hell because i loved the devil's rejects and house of a thousand corpses and he should have just left it at devil's rejects like there was no need for this other movie like it didn't do anything for the family or it was just it was just I, I still i, I still want to see it just because i'm curious considering the ending of devil's rejects but um i i i it's not high on my list because i've heard mixed things about it I also actually watched I this. haven't heard mixed things. Nice <laughs> it's just ter- mixed things. <laughs> terrible things. It was just uh, it was just so bad. Um, and it, it, never mind. I'm not going to spoil it for you. But um, uh, there was also Session Nine, which is another horror movie that was made where like this. Session Nine. It's like I think I know it, that one. It looks like something that came out straight to DVD or like on the Sci-Fi Channel, you know, um, and. If you go on Reddit and you search like scariest movies, this is on there for some reason, but it wasn't like it wasn't that great. And it's all about these people who are supposed to remove asbestos from um, uh, from an abandoned insane asylum. And there's a twist ending, uh, but it just wasn't it didn't do it for me. It was just like that. I think one of the actors is from CSI. And that also took me out of it because he just has this look. He has that classic CSI look the entire time throughout the movie. And I'm just like, yeah. this isn't working for me. Oh, by the way, have you ever watched Four Lions? Four Lions? Yeah. The comedy? Yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. That movie's hilarious. It still holds up. Like, and it's 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 a pretty problematic movie. 
on its surface, but it's hilarious. I mean, hilarious. It's, it's very, very dark comedy, but I think it it's funny. It's hilarious, and I'm I'm kind of upset that I haven't seen, um, I don't know how else to describe him, but the the white bald dude, who is one of the three, uh, one of the four lions, the guy um, who plays Barry, right? Right, Barry, the only yeah. white guy on this team, uh, and the most ridiculous out of all of them. Yeah, he's I'm like the that he, he's the funniest. I know. I'm so I like I want to see him in more stuff. You know, yeah. like I. Yeah, yeah. I it, it, it sucks that that's like the only movie I know him from, but like he was hilarious in that. He sort of like carried a lot of the comedy in that movie. Um, but it's totally worth a watch for for listeners that don't know. It's it's a movie about four people in London who want to become terrorists, but they're really terrible at it. And they're terrible terrorists. They're ter- like they don't even know, with the exception of one person, they don't even know the foundations of the religion that they that they say they believe in and it's just it's just a recipe for disaster yeah it's a dark satire so and it's not it's not for people who have more sensitive constitutions right but and but i will i will say it doesn't demean anyone in that movie it's literally about like the the lone wolf who is just not all there in the head you know it's it, it doesn't demean anyone you know it's not as problematic as it may seem yeah, I didn't I didn't think I don't think so. I think just plot wise you hear that and you think it's like wi- widely insen- wildly insensitive. Right. Um but t- to me it's like I mean obviously like the balls on anybody to make that movie and I don't think that that movie would probably get any sort of financing today. Um right. I think it's like from 2004. I think it was it was, you know, made during a time where people were a little bit more okay with mm-hmm. with things that are not totally totally politically correct um but personally like my, my view on it is that it's a satire it, it's a comedy it's not meant to be taken seriously so you probably shouldn't take it seriously right. when you're watching it i went through and i like this is so i went through this um sydney lummet phase is yeah. it pronounced sydney lummet i think it's um okay. LeMay. Yeah. That makes sense. Sydney LeMay. <laughs> Sydney LeMay. Um I went through a Sydney LeMay fa- phase. Yeah. And um I've watched a lot of his movies before, but this was sort of like me revisiting them with the exception of Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Um I watched that for the first time and it's not it's not his greatest. It's not a movie I would watch again, but I think Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke had really good chemistry together and I think Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman delivers a really good performance in that movie. But when it comes down to editing, because there were these weird transitions where, like, the film would stop and you would zoom in, like, through various cuts into the character before you transition into a new mo- into a new scene. It just, like, it, it was, like, a messy way to tie different stories together. Mm-hmm. Um, but the performances were amazing. Um, and the story is there. I just think... The, the execution wasn't clean and I think it went down to editing because it just wasn't that took me out of it like the, the way the stories intertwined were just didn't make sense but good performances um but before I watched that I rewatched 12 Angry Men mm-hmm. and it, and even the remake which was made for television at the time I, is I good saw that. it's good um it's worth watching and they changed the dynamics a little bit um, because they actually, I, I think the original one, it's all, it, it's all white men 
uh, with the exception of one person. But I think I think it's a little I think that one person is I think there's a little bit of ambiguity as to what that person is. Um, But everyone's white in the original 12 Angry Men and in the made for TV movie, I think two or three characters are black. And I think that changes the dynamic a little bit. And sorry, now that we're talking about it, I'm curious to know what a stage because that was originally meant for the stage and it was um on stage for a while i wonder what today's version of that would be if you had added um women women into the mix black men latinos and white men and to see what that dynamic would be like i feel like that would make for a really interesting stage play with the same 12 angry people i guess though right 12 angry jurors jurors but um jurors, yeah something like that um but the thing the thing with the original 12 angry men it's one of my favorite movies is how you're able to take this really boring setting um because the case in, isn't necessarily necessarily boring you can say that the story is somewhat boring it's one guy who's literally trying to turn 11 other men against their initial beliefs to to yeah you know it's it's pretty boring like visually you'd think that you can't do much for it with it and i think that's why the camera the camera work it's so amazing i mean that first shot the the first like five minutes is like one shot and back then you had to use like humongous cameras to actually get this thing on film it is amazing and there are certain ways he composes a shot that you don't even see in movies today uh so for instance there's one juror the number of which i forgot where um this guy is railing against you could tell that they're that that this guy's racist he's talking about this i think he was i think the the character on trial was puerto rican and he's talking about these people and he keeps like using these very racist uh uh this very racist language and the other men are not having it so they start turning his back they're back to him and this man who's like railing against this puerto rican is suddenly left alone on the frame but with everyone around him and he composes the the shot in such a creative way using the limited space that he has and still capturing everyone on camera but singling this guy out in such an effect in such an effective way that i wish they would show that at least when i was taking film classes in my film classes to show what a camera can actually do because that is one of the movies that really shows you how far you can take it. Um, it, it, it was just brilliant, uh, and it still it still stands the test of time, right? With the exception of it being 12, 12 white men. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I think I think you can learn a lot from that movie in terms of turning, like you said, a, a, a seemingly boring setting in, into a much more dynamic setting with that with that camera work, right? Where. It starts far away, but as the movie goes, it gets closer and closer. Right. And you actually start feeling like you're the third angry man almost, you know, by the end of the movie. It was brilliant. And it's also brilliant acting and writing. You know? uh, a movie like that has to have a lot of emphasis on, on the acting. Right. Did you get the chance to watch The Vanishing? The Vanishing. I don't think I've seen that. This is, I hate to call this horror because it's more of a psychological thriller, if anything, or like a mystery. When did it come um, out? But 1988. Oh, you mentioned this to me before, right? You've yes. mentioned it to me before. 
so i mean the movie it doesn't it doesn't hold up like you don't feel the same level of suspense um as you would with like the girl with the dragon tattoo series right the the um the The original version yeah yeah which i also watched which were amazing but um it doesn't hold up to the same like suspense it creates and and this level of mystery and this anxiety um but there's something about the movie that's still creepy because it's told from two different perspectives it's it it starts off following a couple um and this isn't spoiling anything um it starts off following a couple and the couple stops at a gas station and the woman goes missing and uh the boyfriend becomes obsessed with like trying to find her and even a few uh like a year or two into the future he's still trying to look for her by putting up signs on streets and stuff um to no avail it turns out that he's getting letters from the person who kidnapped her right and in these letters the guy's like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna meet you at xyz place just meet me here and the boyfriend will go and wait and wait and wait and nothing happens in the middle of that story you sort of meet this random character um and he is in the countryside um with his family just enjoying his time and all of a sudden he just like leaves or maybe you don't see that maybe that's towards the end of that first scene but anyways you see you switch characters and and you're seeing this man and he's in a car and he's just like driving to some obscure location after he's had like a picnic with his family or whatever and uh in this obscure location he he lays out a bed in this like abandoned warehouse or something and he knocks himself out using what's that thing called where like you you just have to put a little bit on a a handkerchief and you put it over someone's face and they knock out chloroform chloroform he does that and he as he's about to do it he sets off a timer to see how much time he's going to be knocked out and as you follow him you realize that he's trying to practice to um he's practicing to kidnap someone and you see him attempting to do this to, to to several women, but the women don't buy it. Women get away. Women know that he's up to something weird. Uh, one woman recognizes him and thinks he's trying to cheat on his wife and all this stuff. Until finally, by chance, he kidnaps the boyfriend's girlfriend from earlier in the film. And then they meet face to face and the movie goes on from there at a certain point. And it's just the the story is so odd and and the character the the acting is pretty on point but it is such a good movie and the ending is it messes with you a little bit you're just like i can't believe that just happened that sucks that's terrible a lot of it has to do with fate and um it's worth watching it it's a slow burn but it is such a good freaking movie i gotta i gotta watch that that sounds really interesting the vanishing and uh after that i actually watched um the exorcist 3 which i've never watched the second one only a fan of the first you went from the exorcist to the exorcist 3 yes uh and part of it is because do you listen to to riffin with griffin no it's uh it's a podcast by eric griffin and sometimes he has like uh bobby lee from there's other podcasts (laughs) <laughs> bobby lee and uh his brother stevie weeby is what they call him um and they were talking about like horror movies and 
Eric Griffin was like, have you ever watched Exorcist 3? He was like, it stands on its own. You have to watch it, like, blah, blah, blah. And so after listening to that, I just gave it a watch. And it's on Amazon Prime, if you have it. And um, and I have to admit, I was shocked that it took me that long to watch it, having been a fan of the first one. I mean, I heard the second one was terrible, and I never watched it. But uh, it is such... A, it, it it's such a good movie compared to a lot of the other horror movies that came out in that era and uh it it does stand on its own and it's still it's it has very creepy elements in it where you're just like you're watching it and you're sort of shook by it at the same time i don't know you've watched it before right i've seen the exorcist 3 yeah but um i i gotta be honest i would say that I don't really well remember The Exorcist 2 and 3 all that well. Um, the first Exorcist I've seen many times. Right. Like, I think that's one of the best horror movies of all time. I don't remember being very impressed by 2 and 3, so I I, I kind of don't really remember them all that well. I, I don't know if you're going to do this. Thing, but... the, the, the only thing I remember about The Exorcist 2 is that they actually say the demon's name. Like, you learn that the demon's name is Pizzazzu. That's the only thing oh. I remember about Exorcist 2. <laughs> Anyway, like, rewatch it. Just just watch it with fresh okay. eyes. It's worth it. Like, even if you watch during Halloween, just to, like, add to the mood, it, it's worth watching again. And just seeing it on its own, um, because I think the elements of the first Exorcist have very little to do with the follow-ups. The third, the follow-ups. I never saw the second one. I'm not going to. I don't care what anyone says. I think the second one, one if, I, if, if I remember right, the second one is a direct tie-in to the first one. So maybe the third right. one, they kind of the, went their the own thir- way with it. So the third one, um, what's the name of the writer? William... Um, uh, you mean William Fri- Friedkin? Yeah, William Friedkin. Um, he uh, he had this other book called uh, Legion, I want to say. And it was a, it had nothing to do with The Exorcist. And so he wanted to make that into a movie. But producers were like, hey, because of the success of The Exorcist series, you need to make this a sequel. So he shot the movie and then went back and added small elements of The Exorcist into it. And it's mostly towards the end. The ending is um, is what sort of ties this into The Exorcist. But the beginning is completely... Like, it's separate. Uh, I'm sorry. There, there are... Yeah. Um, William Friedkin is the director of The Exorcist. Are you talking about the writer of The Exorcist? Yes. The writer of the the book and the screenplay was William Peter Blatty. That's who I'm talking to. Okay. Talking about William Peter Blatty. So he he wrote the first one, didn't direct the first Exorcist. He wrote the third Exorcist and directed the third exorcist mm. um and he was gonna just do it wasn't supposed to be part of the exorcist it was supposed to be that standalone book that he wrote legion um but the producer sort of like forced him to add to make it an exorcist, exorcist movie into it. yeah yeah and you I know think what that's, that's like that's like how ha- that's like halloween three i remember right. halloween three Ex- exactly where like exactly. michael myers it is not even nothing in it. to do with- <laughs> <laughs> right had nothing to do with the the halloween series that we know now um but yeah i mean it was uh i i it was good it was creepy it was good filmmaking too so so it's an adaptation of his book legion that is not related to the exorcist but 
when it came time to to adapt it into a film, the producers insisted that they call it The Exorcist just because it kind of, it has to do with like demons and shit. So they were like, we can call it The Exorcist. Not only did they tell him he had to name it The Exorcist 3, they told him they had to, he had to go back and add elements of the original Exorcist into it. So, uh, I won't spoil it completely, but Pazu, what's his name? Pazazu, yeah. awesome name. Pazazu uh, does make an appearance. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. So, Pazazu makes a cameo. That that's what makes it. Well, an exorcist he, movie? he plays he plays a significant part in the oh, movie okay. towards the end. Um, uh, but okay. yeah, also, and sorry, I'm like rambling here. It's okay. Uh, but since it's quarantine, there's very little time to do much else other than read, write, and watch movies. Um. I watched Night of the Hunter for the first time. Oh my god! Which Please is don't even get me started on Night of the Hunter. Go ahead. Talk to me. No, talk you, to you me. T- you What's talk up? to me first. No, 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 no. I want to hear this. That movie is like regarded as like some sort of classic masterpiece. What is so fucking good about that movie? I think I think it's two things, and and let me tell you something. I I found it hard to like it. Um. And it wasn't necessarily uh, the thing that made it hard to like that movie is... Wait, wait, hold uh, on. Sorry. Before you continue, did you like it or did you not like it? I did like it. And I I like it I'm very interested in talking to you then. Very interested in talking to you about this. I wish Evan was here because I would love for him to be here for this. But go ahead. Tell me what you liked about it. So I think... I think number one, I think it was really good direction. And really good cinematography, especially considering that um, Charles Lawton, I believe was his name, uh, that was his first movie that he ever directed. I believe his last. It, yeah, right. It's the only movie he directed. He's an amazing actor. He was in uh, a movie called Advise and Consent. Um, and if you haven't watched it, it's um, it's a movie from the 50s uh, that takes place in Congress. There's this whole thing. It, it's worth watching. It's a great movie and he's great in it he was also in like a witness uh for the prosecution i want to say um also a good movie he's a great actor but anyways he directed this movie and um for for a person who directed for the first time it was the composition the lighting the silhouettes in that movie it's an it, it's amazing. But are you when it giving credit? Direction. Are you giving credit? Are you giving the cinematographer's credit to the director right now? I think I think you have to work hand in hand with both, right? Like you don't look at, for instance, a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and a Martin Scorsese movie wouldn't be the same if it if if the two weren't paired, right? Like I think the director has the vision and the cinematographer helps them achieve that vision. Yeah, th- that's I agree with that. But you can't necessarily say what the situation was with with Night of the Hunter. That's true. With, with, you That's can true. say because Paul Thomas Anderson and 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 uh, Martin Scorsese, they're they're auteurs. They 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 take full control over the movie. I don't know if that's the case with Night of the Hunter. That's true. That's true. Um, you might but be right. I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. I, I'm saying I don't know. I I will say I wouldn't be surprised if. A lot of it was his vision, because if you look at the movies that he's been in in the past, he worked with some pretty heavy hitters. And so maybe he picked up a few things. But um, <laughs> but 
I love the movie because of the direction, because of the composition. The visuals in that movie are delicious. Um, <laughs> and uh, But I will say, the acting is a little out there. There were moments where I loved uh, Mitch... Um, what's his name? Uh, not Robert Mitchum. The priest? The, the... the priest. Robert Mitchum. Um, there are moments where his acting is awkward, but there are other moments where like he's a crazy deranged lunatic. So for instance, at like towards the end when he gets shot, that's not spoiling it for anyone because you just have to watch the movie and you'll see what happens. But um, when he gets shot, it isn't the end of the movie. But when he gets shot, he like wails like a madman and runs off into this barn. And just the way he did it, I was just like, all right, that's a little unsettling. So... But there are elements where I'm just like, his acting is awkward, but I think you have to take the movie within its context, and it was made in the 1950s, and the subject matter is also very not of its time, right? Like, if you, it's a pretty brutal movie, and I think it would be made differently today than it was back then, if you, if you know what I mean. I think it would have a more of a true detective sort of feel, if that makes sense. Um, but... You have to give him credit because the movie visually is amazing. I mean, the shot of the woman in uh, in the car under the water, people have no idea what we're talking about. So hopefully that's not a spoiler. Like, go watch it. Honestly, like, when I start talking about this movie, I'm going to spoil it. So if you don't want to hear the spoilers of Night of the Hunter, just skip Just turn it All off right. right now. So anyway, um, uh, the mother that he ends up killing in the movie by cutting her up and then drowning her in that lake there's a shot where it's sort of you know you see her hair and it's waving in the middle of the water and like you see the seaweed it's waving and it's sort of like this is a shot establishing the fact that you know she's under the water right but it's this beautiful composition and we're holding on her for like 30 seconds longer than we need to and as we're holding on her um robert mitchum is humming a song while leaning on a tree in another scene but before we see that other scene his his singing is sort of superimposed on what we're seeing then the dead woman in this water just floating there um and it's just such a creepy transition and little things like that within the movie just made it so good and if you watch uh if you look at the bedroom where the kids are sleeping or even his own bedroom where he's sleeping with his wife, you know, his his wife quotation marks. The sets are are creepy in and of themselves, right? Um they're almost church-like if you watch them. Um and I think all those elements combined make it good. Now, I will say that it's not a movie that ages well. If you watch it, there's a whole sequence where like the kids are rowing down a river and it takes like 30 minutes for anything to happen and it's so boring and i'm just like what the hell and some of the acting is just terrible it's corny it's like that 1950s corniness that you have to sort of like look through and remember the context in which it was made and and those things are the things that took me out of it but in terms of story at the time i think it was ahead of its time and i think with the exception of some points, I think Robert Mitchum's acting was unsettling, you know? Um, but I'm curious to hear about you, you know? So, I mean, first of all, 
Okay, to summarize what you said, it seemed like the real appeal for you was was the cinematography and the set design and, and the atmosphere that the movie created. That seemed to be your big draw, right, in, in summation. And I, and I like Robert Mitchum, um, but also, also uh, the story itself for the time period it was made, it was, it was ahead of its time, you know. So first of all, it was made in the fifties. I don't buy, um, I don't buy this. It was made in the fifties. So you got to think of it in context of that, because there's so many movies from the fifties and even earlier that I think are great from directors like, like Alfred Hitchcock and, and Howard Hawks that I didn't feel the way I felt about Night of the Hunter. I don't think it's a fifties thing, what I didn't mm-hmm. like about it. And ju- just just for some context, the movie is essentially about this evil priest that decides to um, uh, who, who who his cellmate in jail um, who died uh, confessed him where he had some buried loot from like a robbery or something like that. So he goes and he basically weasels his way into that person's family to get the money. That's essentially right. the story. And there's the wife and the two children of his cellmate. Right. Now, the setup is that this priest is like he like he's like the killer of prostitutes. He's like a Jack the Ripper right. type character. It's implied. You don't see it throughout yeah, the Yeah, you don't see it, but it's implied in the movie. He he has a trial, he gets sentenced, he goes to jail, he meets the cellmate, he, the cellmate dies, he has like his fucking exit thing, then he goes and he moves to the town. That all happens in like ten minutes. And that is all that whole story is like a movie in and of itself. But that happens in like right. the first 10 minutes. He meets the he, so now you're introduced to like the family and and there's like this fucking barbecue or some shit. And the wife calls her son, who's like kind of like the main character. Mainly the movie focuses on the two children, a, a, a right. young boy and an even younger girl. And she goes, oh, come meet this nice man. Oh, that we just met, that just moved to town, this priest, whatever. And he's got love and hate tattooed on his fingers and shit. And like the, the priest meets the children and all that. That night, that kid comes home and the priest is there and he's like, oh, I'm your new father. I'm marrying your mother. <laughs> right. Uh, honestly, I didn't buy anything that happened in that movie. Not a single event did I find believable in that movie. He moves to the town. This woman's husband just died. He marries her the day he meets her and he's laying right. down the law and he's killing all these people too. Like you said, like he killed this woman and he drove her car into the lake and that must have been the most shallow lake in the world because anytime someone looked in the lake, she was just in there and somehow nobody knew what happened to her and nobody knew that he killed her. Wait, but... To, to give more context to this, Robert Mitchum's character, the, the priest, he doesn't go to jail for killing people. He goes to jail because he stole a car. And so that's why he's out of jail so early. And then on top of that, they imply that, a, they imply that some time has gone by between when he meets the woman to when they get married. If that was implied, it wasn't. It didn't come across, not to me at all. It felt right. like it was. I, it felt like it was literally that <laughs> night because they meet during the day, and then the kid just comes into the house, and it's nighttime. So you're like, okay, the b- before was during the day. Now this is at night. I hear. I hear what you're saying, but um, anyways, uh, then afterwards, when you're right, there was shallow water, 
and I think to save his ass, um, the the uncle of the child who works on the barge in the yeah. lake in which he he sunk the car, he sees the body, but he decides not to say anything. And the reason is he's like a drunk and he's just like, people are going to think I did it. So he refuses to say anything. My issue, I, I hear you that the movie doesn't stand up, you know, but wait, can, because can of I, those I, different I, elements. Can I finish though? Yeah. And then you can just respond. So all this shit happens. And to me, all this shit happens really, really fast. Pacing wise. You want right. to say it happened <laughs> over the course of months? Fine. But in the pacing of the movie. So much shit happens in like the first half hour to 45 minutes. And then the kids escape. And like you said before, they get on this canoe or this boat. And then the movie grinds to a halt. You're right. At first, you can't keep up with what's going on. And now they're on this boat. And the movie just goes on for like 30 (laughs) minutes. They're just on this boat. It was tough to get through that. Going down this river. Then they eventually get to the end of the river. And they meet some old lady who's like who runs like some sort of fake uh, orphanage, right? And then they just start right. this new life with this lady. They, they abandon their mother with this maniac. And now they're just, they just have this life. They're, now you're just watching them. They're going to the supermarket. They're buying groceries. And then, and then this, the, the priest shows up again. He found them. And then the old lady's like, oh, no, I don't trust you. You're not taking the kids. And that's kind of like, that's it. And that's kind of it. Because because the thing is, and also, they also imply that there's something weird going on with the woman he ends up marrying. Because if you watch her, even when, um, even when he admits to to only having married her because he's looking for the money that um her ex husband hid. Um, her late husband. she sort of her late husband. Um, she loses it. And you can tell by her face where she's just like, it doesn't matter. Like, whatever's happening to me is because of God or whatever. And, like, this whole weird religious thing takes over. And she becomes, um, I don't want to say submissive. She becomes, she she bends to the will of whatever the pe- preacher wants. And it plays with this overall theme about marriage and men, too. Because if you, if you watch throughout the movie, a constant theme is, um, you know, why is that single woman not with a man, right? And at the very end when the... And I, I and I got to give it to you, when it comes to that scene where the kids are just like rowing down an endless river, it's boring as hell, and it is. Um, and I still don't know why he made that. Uh, but after that hump, you go back to this woman um, who takes them in, this woman who runs like this low-key do-it-yourself orphanage, and she too plays with this idea of why are women so in need of another man's presence and it's because of that really sort of uh idea that she has that she begins to trust the children more than the man who shows up at her door and it's shown throughout the movie including when um when one of the older girls that she looks after is like getting courted by different men she sort of speaks to her about that in ways that make it clear that she doesn't believe a woman needs a man in her life. Whereas every other character up until that point was like, like the people who sort of forced um, the widow to marry the preacher were like, Hey, you should, you should get with this man because he'll help you. 
these children shouldn't be alone. And so that was the overall, that was one of the overall themes in the story. But I, I do, I do agree with you where that, that whole scene where they're like trudging in this lake and trying to get away from the preacher was like so elongated for no reason. But I don't think that takes away from the overall movie. So your 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 basically your your argument is that there was a lot of subtext in the movie, like a, there was a strong message about like female independence. No, that's not my argument. Um, that's not why I like the movie. It's just something that the but it's some it's more context to add to this movie because I don't think it. I think you're right. It sort of rushes through the whole time period of. Um, Robert Mitchum marrying the widow, the preacher marrying the widow. Um, but I do think that the director didn't just, or the writer didn't just go through the entire story, sort of like condensing all these things. I think he, he added things to the story that made this make sense. And it wasn't so subtle because if you, the, the, the dialogue gives it away whenever they're talking about men throughout the entire movie. Um, that can sort of help people get to to the current state in wherever they are in the movie a bit faster, if that makes sense. Um, but for me, what does it is it's it's Robert Mitchum. It's the story and it's the direction. Um, I think I think it's up there with uh, a lot of how the movies were composed with like. Uh, not Citizen Kane, but some of other Orson Welles movies, right? Like from a direction standpoint, from from a cinematography standpoint, it is beautiful. But you, you can't beautiful. compare it to Citizen Kane, which is like this perfectly crafted movie, right? Like Citizen Kane is widely regarded as one of the best movies of all time. And one of the reasons of is course. it's, but the, the reason is that the movie is put together so perfectly. You know, it's one of those, right. it's one of those few movies where you can say it's like so structurally correct. And, you know, you can make a strong case for the imagery and the set design, the cinematography and, and the, the subtext of Night of the Hunter. But ultimately, the pacing of that movie's fucked up. Like, I, I don't see how you can argue that it's not. It is. It's fucked up. I, I never no, argued that. It I'm wasn't. not saying you. I, I'm saying anybody right. who like loves that movie. It's like you got to acknowledge that the pacing of the movie's fucked up. And for me, I didn't buy the story at all. I just couldn't mm -hmm. believe anything that was happening. Like. In my mind, I'm like, this would never happen. Like, that's basically the whole right. time what I was thinking. And and I guess because of that, I maybe missed a lot of that stuff that you're talking about, about, um, you know, the, the female empowerment stuff. Maybe it was more obvious than maybe it's not subtext. Maybe it's just text. But but to me, I, I guess I missed the forest for the trees because I just couldn't get into it. And I think what I look for is like, first, you got to have a good, you got to be telling a good story to make a good movie. That's what I think. And right. everything else is extra. You know, the symbolism, themes, subtext, all that stuff is icing on the cake. But you got to have a good cake. You know, and for me, Night of the Hunter wasn't a good cake. I see that's the thing. I enjoyed the story too. Like, for, for me, it was creepy to, I mean, the story itself. This guy stumbles upon another criminal who's sentenced to death. And the criminal in his sleep keeps talking about this money that he left with his kid. And he's off to try to figure out how he can get his hands on that money. 
the, I was the just story like, and itself he, the story itself is fine like i think it couldn't be a good story i just think the way it plays out of course and the pacing yeah. of it i just didn't buy any of it right the you're right the pacing's it, it it's the pacing is not good especially for me it's more that scene where the kids are running away it, it, that's those scenes do nothing for me um and it's hard to say that it moves the story forward but even when he ma- up to the point where he married the wife i just felt like it was a mad dash to get to that that place it was you're right it was a mad dash you but... cut down you cut down that that escape scene you cut uh, you only show like a quarter <laughs> of that and you use that time to kind of fill out the rest and you might have had a pretty good movie on your hands for for me at least a movie that i would have liked a lot better right um for me there were some other redeeming portions of it uh some of it is uh again robert mitchum's acting uh yeah you really like that character and and the composition um uh but anyways like i started watching that like after i went through this phase of like watching crime movies and these weird mysteries and including like rewatching the first season of true detective and stuff like that um so it was interesting it was interesting to see a story like that take place back then right in the 1950s Man, I can't believe you actually brought up Night of the Hunter, because Evan and I, Evan and I, have had very long discussions about Night of the Hunter and how it's like seems to be widely regarded as um, as like like a classic. And what's funny enough is um, uh, we're we're doing this thirty day movie challenge on Instagram, one of those thirty day challenges stories. Yeah. And today was um, a movie that you hate that everybody else likes. And he and put Night of the Evan Hunter. Evan chose Night of the Hunter. <laughs> Today. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> but that is I, funny. I, mean, I can't wait to tell him. But like, you know what? I'm not even going to tell him. I'm going to say, yo, make sure you listen to that podcast. Make sure you listen to that episode I did with Raul. Look, and, and to be clear, when I say uh, it's up there with uh, Citizen Kane, I meant the cinematography in terms no, of I know, I know, it, I, I know what yeah. you meant. I just meant that Citizen Kane is just like, and to me, you're right. As, as a movie, way. as a movie, as uh, as a whole, you're right. But um, when it comes to cinematography, I think it's up there with Citizen Kane. I mean, that movie plays with lighting in such like the silhouettes in that movie are fucking amazing. Um, yeah, and I don't you, know. You, you, you want to hear something really interesting about Citizen Kane? You yeah. know those scenes where they'd be like the stage and the huge crowd. Yeah. So that crowd was like just a still image of a crowd. And then they would, in, in for areas, they would cut holes and then have like a little flame behind it to kind oh. of give the illusion of like something is moving. Like how that's pretty incredible. It is. Nowadays um, you just you CGI that shit like in 300. But yeah, I mean, uh, I also watched Seven recently. While I was on my binge for like true David crime Fincher and stuff like seven, that, right? classic movie. You know? Yeah, um, it feels like that movie feels so complete in terms of a movie, you know, um, because I, it just feels like a complete movie. Like the whole movie is, um, I don't know how to explain it. Like you watch a movie and you feel satisfied at the end of it, um, with the exception of from 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 a direction standpoint rather than the way you feel at the end of the movie from a direction standpoint you're just like wow that is a movie you know like that is a complete movie it it takes advantage of all its elements to actually create a good fucking movie 
Um, and even though the story doesn't make you feel that way, because in no way are you satisfied at the end of that movie, right? Like you just mean when, from when like a focus... story, like a, a structural story standpoint. Exactly right? yeah. from 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 you know uh, from building a connection with characters and everything. You don't yeah. feel satisfied at the end of it, and he does such a good job at making you feel that dissatisfaction with his direction, right? Like right. when he's building up that tension, what's in the box, what's in the box and all this stuff. And then uh, when Brad Pitt, everybody knows the ending when Brad Pitt finally takes his shot um, and he's doing like, you see that first shot that he takes after all these tense close-ups and everything, you see this one measly shot that he, he takes, he shoots, uh, uh, kevin spacey's character in the head but the way they shoot it is it's sort of like a medium long shot you're watching it from pretty far away when he takes his first shot and shoots him in the head and it's this very sort of anticlimactic death that you see after all this tension and it was the perfect way to sort of summarize you're not going to be satisfied with this ending yeah the villain's dead but it's what he wanted yeah he's dead but at the end no one really wins right right um and it was just such a brilliant way to end that movie um and uh and the acting so from morgan freeman and brad pitt sometimes i forget that brad pitt can act just because i'm just like he's, i think Bra- i think that i actually i honestly think brad pitt's an incredible actor i really i strongly think that and and I think, like, what's funny is, like, I think he said, like, Troy was, like, his breaking point where he was, like, I'm done with these, like, BS, like, big right. budget movies. And ever since then, I feel like he's never, he's he doesn't really do bad movies. He has he has range, too, when he wants to use it, yeah. just like Adam Sandler, you know? And um, I, I did notice that uh, you didn't compliment Kevin Spacey's acting. Amazing. I mean, do you need to? It's just, <laughs> I, I hate, I mean... Yeah, everything he's done is problematic and I don't think I don't think there's a space for him to continue doing this work. No, he's 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 relegated to strange YouTube videos once a year around Christmas time now. He he just has to stop. I think the the the, the one of my favorite moments in that movie is like, you know, you you spend a good portion of the movie, you know, with the two detectives and they're trying to figure out who's committing these crimes and then he just turns himself in. And it just yeah. flips the whole movie on its head. You're like, wait a second, wait a second. I thought we were going to find out who did this at the end. You know, but now it's like halfway through the movie and it's like, oh my God, he just turned himself in. It, the movie changes completely. Right. It was so, and um, it, you know, it was interesting. The, the, the way they caught him where it was just like, oh, the FBI traces uh, the different books people take out of the library just to make sure no one's reading anything that might lead them to do something crazy. Right. At the the time, like that was, that That was, that was before the NSA and all this stuff. And to me, I was just like, it's not unbelievable that this would happen, but I guess at the time it's just like, yo, does the FBI actually do this stuff? And it was just, it was interesting to hear in such an analog way. Oh, they trace the books that you're taking out at the library. As opposed to now it's like, whatever you Google, you know, before the internet, there was a physical internet and that was the right. local library. <laughs> so when they couldn't right. track you on the internet because it didn't exist yet, they tracked you by what books you checked out at the library. That's hilarious. Right. That, it was, there it you was go, ahead of its funny. time, right? Seven and Night of the Hunter. Can't tell them apart. Hey, hey. 
Stop with that nonsense. <laughs> David Fincher is one of my That's... favorites. I think he's incredible. He's really good. All right. So um, thanks, Raul. Of course. Follow us at Spinning Real Films on Instagram, Spinning Real F on Twitter, or email us at spinningrealfilms at gmail.com. That's Spinning Real R E A L. I'm on Twitter. It's just Raulito, uh, which is R A U L I T O 182. So you could follow us or you could follow Raul. And most importantly, join the cult. Radio.